people, gee, he's been away a long time. And uh, they thought, we've got to take matters into our own hands. And they made a golden calf and started worshipping it instead of God. And uh, the boys were off in the arcade and we needed to bowl. And so I just thought, gee, I've got to be an Aaron here. And uh, I had a couple extra bowls for them. I doubt there's anything I dislike more than waiting. It's something we're not very good at as a rule. So a couple of weeks ago in the news, I saw that when the Virgin Airline check-in counters had kind of failed, thousands of people uh, at the airport were stuck for a day or more, and that was kind of a big deal on the news. Credit cards are a bit the same. Uh, they mean that we don't have to wait to buy things anymore. We just chuck it on the card. The sexual revolution... Has, uh, has, I mean, people have never really wanted to wait to have sex, but of course now we have a philosophical excuse uh, for doing that before marriage. But when you think of the Bible, waiting is one of the things that we're called to do as Christians. That is, one of the things that men and women of faith are marked by. All the people in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 were waiting for the promises of God, and the Bible says that they are waiting for a long time. In fact, they're still waiting because most of them, all of them, were waiting when they died. So Jesus calls on us to wait. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, how to wait well, because there will be a wait. History confirms it. 2,000 years of church history confirms it. And if we're required to wait, we have to know how to do it right. And so in our text, Jesus is going to teach us the way to wait. I'm going to pray and then we're going to get into it. Father, I know how easily I can become preoccupied complacent, dull. Forgive me for that. Forgive us for our self-indulgence, our lack of discipline, our prayerlessness, our spiritual laziness. Reteach us, Father, to be on the cutting edge of your kingdom. Help us to be ready for Christ's coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, how you wait depends on your relationship with the one who's coming. Jesus says this, Be dressed and ready for service. Keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. So here are three characteristics of the good waiter. They're prepared, so they're dressed and ready. They're involved in regular maintenance, the lights are on, and they're waiting in eagerness, like waiting for a master to come back from a wedding. First, they're prepared and ready for action. Literally, their loins were girded. That means their long rows, which you couldn't do much work in, were basically tucked inside their undies so that they could get down to work. We might say our sleeves are rolled up, ready for action. Second, they kept their lamps burning, so no street lights, no porch lights back in those days. The master doesn't want to fumble with his keys, so they have the lamps on. And third, they're eagerly waiting for his return. Now, Jesus says the master's been away at a wedding, not that he was a groom, but he was a guest. It's a good reason to be away, a very enjoyable activity, weddings, a good reason to, for him to come back late. And when he comes back, the mood is going to be festive and joyful, and the eager servant will be ready, immediately able to open the door when the master returns. Jesus says, it'll be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself ready to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It would be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. 
if we're ready for Jesus, it's going to be good for us. It's, it's an astonishing picture. The master will serve the servants, those servants found waiting. They'll sit back at the table and he'll wait on them. It's a beautiful picture of heaven. If you haven't thought of heaven that way, Jesus will serve us and we'll no longer be servants, we'll be his friends because who do you have for dinner? You have your friends. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus moves to a really different image here. We've been having the master-servant image. So that's an encouragement for people to wait well. And then there's the owner-thief image. That's a warning for people who aren't waiting. In the first image, Jesus is the master who's welcomed. In the second, he's the thief who's not welcomed, whose arrival uh, is a disastrous occurrence for the owner of the house. Now, something that's happening, been happening in our place lately, Wendell has been making gingerbread men. He's very proud of them. I took him to the football last week to the SCG to watch the Dragons play and I broke one of his gingerbread men and he cried for a whole half of football, so he loves them. But if I'm sitting on the couch at home and I feel little hands go over my eyes and a little voice says, Daddy, close your eyes and open your mouth. Chances are high, I'm getting a gingerbread man. But if I'm on the ferry and I feel some hands go over my eyes and I hear the words, Daddy, close your eyes and open your mouth. Okay? I'm a bit worried. You know what makes a difference? Relationship. And that's what makes a difference in this image. The master and the servants, they love each other. And so when the servants wait for him to come, it's because of who he is. They've trusted that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one who every good and perfect gift comes from. But the thief, they, don't, well, they hope he never comes because he spells disaster. The, the homeowner is going to lose everything he has just like the rich fool will lose all his possessions. The difference is relationship and the gospel fills in the blanks. Now, how you've waited will be judged by Jesus. Peter asks, Jesus, is this going to be in the test? How much of this do I have to know? Lord, are you telling this parable to us or, or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his possessions to give them food and allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he'll put him in charge of his possessions. The faithful manager is to continue his service into eternity, but he gets more responsibilities. The faithful manager is rewarded for doing now what he's going to be doing in the future. And actually, this is a picture of Jesus. I think sometimes we're happy to think of Jesus coming to service in his first coming. I did not come to be served, but to serve, right? But we're less happy to think in his second coming that it's going to go down that way. He's going to come back as king. We're going to sing to him. We're going to worship him. He'll be enthroned. Surely he's not going to serve a second time. But if we're reading this rightly, he comes to serve the first time and when he comes again, he comes to serve. This is the lesson for us. If it's not demeaning for Jesus to serve us, it's not demeaning for us to serve each other. It's our glory. I think some people at church think of serving as the unpleasant path to glory. I'll slog my guts out, maybe God will be happy with me, maybe at the end he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant, and I will relax. But Jesus' words strongly imply that serving is our glory. 
because that's what we're going to be doing into eternity. So how are we to wait? We serve our Lord and Master. I'll tell you what I'm not saying because some people here might be thinking that in order to impress Jesus, you have to leave your job, you've got to sign up for everything happening at St. Matt's, you've got to stand on street corners telling everyone about Jesus, maybe even sign up for full-time ministry. That's actually not what I'm saying. But it's a good question. If Jesus is coming back, what should I do tomorrow? How should I live? C.S. Lewis, amazing essay. It's an essay called Learning in Wartime. He says this, Before I became a Christian, I do not think I fully realised that one's life after conversion would inevitably consist of doing most of the same things one had been doing before. That's what he says about his experience in the Great War. I thought it would be all war, but the nearer I got to the front line, the less everyone spoke about the campaign. Why? Because it's silly to think a soldier's life consists of fighting 24-7 and engaging the enemy. Normal life continued on the front line, albeit in difficult circumstances. In the, in the trenches, soldiers read books, wrote letters, enjoyed hot meals, told jokes, cried and laughed together. In other words, life, even in war, is more than war. And the Christian life is more than just slogging your guts out at church as vital and as essential as church is. The reason no war can suppress these natural human instincts is because they're God-given in the first place. You know what Paul says? Eating and drinking can be done to glorify the Lord. That means the, the, the staff here can take a day off or take a holiday and enjoy those things as something good in themselves, not just to recharge their batteries for more kind of gospel work. The Christian can remain in their job and do it heartily as for the Lord. The university student can watch movies at, at uni just for the love of good filmmaking. Um, it's okay to mow the lawn, clean the pool, read the newspaper, walk the dog, play guitar. It's God-honouring and gospel-loving to do those things when we do them with thanksgiving. And I have to say, if you think that's somehow out of touch with the last days, then remember how Jesus lived. For him, there was a time to study the Bible. There was a time to work with wood. There was a time to heal the crowds. There was a time to have dinner with friends. There was a time for a wedding and a time for a sermon. There was a time to go away and pray. And there was a time just to check out the flowers in the field, the lilies. But, but suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming and then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect it. At an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place for the unbelievers. So we're back once again to the imagery of master and servant, but this time the, the servant is a wicked one. He's not eagerly awaiting his master's return. He's not dressed and ready for service. The lamps aren't burning. He's not eagerly waiting there. And Jesus gives a, a big warning. I mean, imagine Peter's mind spinning as he hears this. He's thinking, oh, far out. Who's the manager? Who's the servant? Why is the servant doing this? Why is he getting cut into pieces and assigned a place for the unbelievers? It's a good question for us too. Who is the servant? Because I think that's hell. Where do unbelievers go to be punished? That's hell. Hell is a place of punishment. I think it seems everyone who's a false teacher or a leader leading a double life fits into this category. 
people entrusted with the knowledge of God, with the words of eternal life, who are keeping it to themselves while they're suiting themselves, while they're feeding themselves. This is not a believer. This is not someone who is saved but disciplined, as we read about elsewhere. This is someone who is totally dismembered. Israel herself, actually, is probably a good example of this. Israel was given privileges and responsibilities. They were to be a light to the world. They were actually to be the manager that was to feed the world because they had the words, they had the scriptures. But like Jonah, Israel didn't want to do this. They resisted it the whole way. They consumed their blessings on themselves. They abused the Gentiles. They abused their own people. And the prophets talk about this all the time. This is Isaiah chapter 65. I think this fits perfectly with the very thing Jesus is talking about. This is God speaking. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who can continually provoke me to my face. But as for you who forsake the Lord, I will destine you for the sword and all of you will fall in a slaughter. For I called but you did not answer. I spoke and you did not listen. Therefore this is what the Sovereign Lord says, My servants will eat, but you'll go hungry. My servants will drink, but you'll go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you'll be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out of anguish of heart and brokenness of spirit. You know why God can say that? Because he himself is going to come and those who are found waiting, listening eagerly for the Lord will be served. They'll be sat down, they'll recline. Jesus himself will serve them. He'll feed them. He'll care for them. That will be joyful. But the false teachers and the hypocrites, they will fall in the slaughter. Jesus says, I've come to bring fire on earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and what constraints I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace? No, I tell you, but division. Jesus is going to divide the people who are listening to him, who are waiting for him, who are obedient to him, to the people who have rejected him. Even as we read that, it sounds kind of jarring. Is this Jesus, the Prince of Peace? Why does he sound so enthusiastic about kindling this fire? I think the answer is something like this. It's a bit like a pregnant woman looking forward to her labour. It's not that the labour is going to be enjoyable and pleasant in itself, but it's what results, it's what's birthed. In order for the kingdom of God to be established, something that is not pleasant, something that is not enjoyable has to happen. That's Jesus' baptism. Not the one where he was dipped in the Jordan, but the one where he was dipped in our sins, immersed in them the sins that held him under till he died, the sins that should have held us under. I've come to divide, I've come to bring the kingdom of God. I'm eager for that to happen, but I have a baptism to undergo, says Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. It's a hard teaching for our ears and it does seem like there's contradictions. He's the Prince of Peace, but he'll bring division. He promises life, but he calls us to give up life. He tells us to store up our treasures in heaven, but then he tells us not to seek riches and give our money to the poor. The difference is, 
On the one hand, there's the end, but there's also the means. Peace is the end, but division is the means. Blessing and riches is the end, but giving up the pursuit of them is the means. Life is the end, but death, his death, his baptism, is the means. And here's something that I think we need to learn this morning. Since the means seem to contradict the ends, we have to go about the means by faith. Since the means seem to contradict the ends, we have to go about the means by faith. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide yourself purses that will not wear out. Seems so strange, so backwards, but we go about these by faith. Jesus says, be dressed and ready for service, keep your lamps burning like servants, waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet. There's a second type of unfaithfulness there. It's a lesser category. It's a category of ignoring Jesus' instruction. Look at verse 47. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the servant who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. From the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Now for the Jews, this was scandalous. They were clearly the group of people who had been entrusted with much. And Jesus was saying to them, the Gentiles will get off more lightly than you guys because you have spat this back in God's face. Jesus is very clear. You're not getting to heaven just because you're born a Jew. You go to heaven because you listen to me, you obey me, you're in relationship with me. My death covers your death. If you die with me, you'll live with me. In other words, those with more knowledge have more responsibility. The day of judgment and subsequent experience of hell might be more bearable for the Amazonian Indian than the son in a Christian family on the northern beaches who grows up and rejects Jesus and tramples on the Son of God, as it says in Hebrews. It's a difficult thing to to think and get our heads around, but at least it suggests that God's future punishments are not random. They're not disproportionate. They're not thoughtless. But they're measured and appropriate. Perhaps there's a church being badly taught by an uneducated minister out there who will not be as held as liable as this church where we're literate, where we have Bibles in our bookshelves at home gathering dust and we don't bother to open them up and listen to God speaking to us. It also has a meaning for the for managers of people of, of God today too. Feeding the people of God is a big deal. You know, from time to time I've had to remove people from ministry because although they know the Master's will, they're not listening to him, they're not ready waiting for him and they're not obedient to him. We're to serve the Master and not ourselves. So if you're a small group leader, if you're involved in feeding the people of God, if you're a parish counsellor, If you're a youth group leader, if you're a warden, if you're a singer, if you're a children's ministry leader, if you're involved in this this ministry of serving the people of God, listen, listen to the words that Peter said some years later after he processes all of this and writes his own letter to the churches. Peter says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, 
but being examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. We need to hear this. The ministry team needs to hear this. Elders in the church need to hear this. If you're involved in a feeding ministry, don't serve in ministry because you think you have to. If that's you, you have to stop now. Don't do ministry because of dishonest gain. Whatever that looks like in our context, maybe that status among your peers, oh, look at me, everyone, um, the approval of the ministry team. In, in, in my context, in youth ministry, you can just kind of want to be on the team because it's kind of a cool place to be. It's, it's a fun social life. Don't lord it over those entrusted to you. It's not a time for power trips when you're feeding the people of God. But be willing shepherds, eager to serve, examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. We'll spend the last couple of minutes just thinking about how we can wait well. If you knew Christ was coming back at 3 o'clock tomorrow, you would be a saint at 245 you'd have your Sunday smile on, you'd pretend to really care about, Bruce, how are you, Bruce? How are you really? The question is, how come we're not like that all the time? All the time that Jesus could be coming back, being engaged in activities that we we wouldn't be ashamed of if he came back. It's a good thing to think to yourself, the thing I'm about to do, the people I'm about to see, the place I'm about to go, would I be ashamed of that, embarrassed, if the Lord were to come back? If the answer is yes, don't do it. You can't pray about your plans for the evening. Don't do it. Paul says this in Romans 13. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let's put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. This generation is closer to the return of Jesus than any other generation that's ever been. Hearing this sermon today, you are closer to the return of Jesus the last time you heard someone teach on his return. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. This is not the time to party and drink, Paul says. Don't be drunk on wine and spirits, but be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Stay away from immorality, Paul says. Pre-marital sex, extramarital sex. As much as people want to say something different, God does not like them. He calls them sin. He's not okay with it. We can't be competing, Paul says, with others, trying to prevail over other people to want the highest prestige, the most recognition or prominence. We're to focus our energies on becoming more like Jesus. He is Lord every day of our life. When we go to church, when we go to the beach, when we go to work, when we go to dinner. You know, someone once said, when he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. When he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And Jesus says, be dressed and ready for service. Keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet. I don't know when the end of the world is, but the end of your world could be before the end of the world. 
is this group of people ready to meet God? We're not good waiters. Like me at the bowling on Friday night. I don't have time to wait. And some people, like Aaron, thought Moses has been away a long time, better take matters into my own hands. They start living life like God is not coming back. If that's you, then you need to hear these words from Peter again. I think processing some of this stuff Jesus was teaching him. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 reads, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Lord, are you talking to me? Yes, Peter. I'm coming back and those who are found eager, waiting, they'll recline at the table and I'll serve them, but those who aren't, I'm coming back as their judge. And Jesus says, why don't you judge for yourselves what's right? As you're going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled with him on the way or your adversary may drag you off to the judge and the judge may turn you over to the officer and the officer may throw you in prison. I tell you, you'll not get out until you've paid the last penny. If Jesus is coming back, we had better seek to be reconciled to him because when Jesus comes back, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. For some people, he'll extend his hand and he'll lift you up, he'll sit you down and he will serve you. And some people will say Jesus is Lord through chattering teeth as he prepares to be your judge. May none of us be in that second group. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly I tell you, he'll dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait for them. I'm going to pray now because Jesus could come back at any time for any one of us. And if you need to be reconciled with your adversary, if you want to be found ready and waiting, all you have to do, it's, it's, not, it's not about pulling your socks up, it's not about more ministry, more church life, more service. It's about being reconciled to Jesus. It's about being in relationship with Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus. It's about claiming his death for the death that should have been yours. So if you'd like to let me pray for you, I'd love to do that. And then we're going to celebrate communion together this morning. Father, this morning we want to acknowledge that your return is real, it's imminent. Father, help anyone this morning who wants to be reconciled to you, to put their, their trust in you, to, to put aside, to put behind them their life of ignoring and, and thinking you're not coming back, but to, to die with you and therefore live with you. Have mercy, Lord, and thank you for your promise that those who are found waiting will be served by you into eternity loved, fed and cared for. Thank you, Jesus. Now I'd like to pray for us all.
Jesus, I come to you on behalf of everyone in the room. Help us remain faithful this morning. Help us to keep on serving you even when we're discouraged, even when it doesn't seem like we're accomplishing anything. Help us to be faithful servants that you delight to find serving in your household. Forgive us. Forgive me, Lord, when we fail you. Cleanse us and set us back on the way of service until you come. Come soon, Jesus. Come soon. Amen.